0: Well, I guess you could say the clock is ticking for Jesus. It was just a matter of hours before he was going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And then just a matter of a few hours after that before he'd be suspended in midair between heaven and earth, crucified, bleeding and dying for the sins of the whole world. And so with the precious moments that he has left, every second counting he wants to leave this lasting impression with his disciples. Knowing that, that every moment is precious, he wants to, to leave them with, with what, what they'll be known for, what, what they want to, what he wants them to be known for. And the words that we get to focus on are the words that we just looked at, words from a much larger conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on this Monday Thursday night, I And mean, before we dive into those words, um, let's just talk about that for a moment. Monday Thursday. I wonder if you know what that word Monday means, and if you're saying I don't exactly know why it's called Monday Thursday, you're probably in some pretty good company. It comes from a Latin word mandatum, and maybe in that word you can hear the word uh, mandate. Command, that's where we get that word from. So it's basically Command Thursday. Mandate Thursday. That's what this uh, name really is. And for hundreds of years throughout the Christian church, that's the name given and has stuck and it's been celebrated every Holy Week thereafter. And to understand why it's called Mandate Thursday, Command Thursday, Monday Thursday, to understand why it's still around, you have to understand what Jesus was telling his disciples that night. And if you look at the conversation that Jesus had, from John chapter 12 all the way to John chapter 17, six chapters, you'll find this massive, extensive conversation that John records for us. But in that, you'll find one word that, that repeats some 31 times. The word love. Love, love, love. Jesus wants his disciples to to have this impression, this lasting idea. He wants them to be known by love. He wants them to remember Jesus by love. He wants them to to go forth with love. He, He wants to talk and he does talk again and again and again about love. But right here, in order to leave a really good impression in their minds, something that sticks, something that they will not soon forget, something that they will, if not now, eventually fully understand, He's not just talking about love, but he decides to show it in a very shocking and impressionable way. And that's where I want to pick up today. Um, If you're following along, I want you to start with me at verse 4. John writes, So he, Jesus, got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, if you were a Jew or someone from that culture reading those words or listening to those words, your eyebrows probably would have raised. You probably would have wanted to reread or have the person re-narrate what just happened because it's a little bit unbelievable. It's very shocking. And I don't think it's a stretch to say this might have been the most awkward silence that the disciples had throughout their three-year ministry with Jesus, right here in this room, as Jesus washes their feet. It was very shocking. It was very impressionable. And, And to understand why this wasn't just a regular thing that you would expect, to understand why it was so impressionable, you have to understand what washing feet was like back then. I think it's safe to say that feet are, by and large, kind (laughs) of gross. You know, they're not exactly the most attractive part of the body. I don't know of really too many people who who highly praise feet. We usually try to hide them. And if you think about it, the grossness also comes from the smell. (laughs) Like, think about, we're, we're on these dogs all day with our jobs uh, maybe you have a hard workout or maybe you come home from work, come home from a long extended practice and you take your shoes off and before you even touch your socks, that smell, that odor wafts to your nostrils and whoo, it almost puts you back on your heels a little bit. And sometimes maybe it's so bad that, that your mom or your wife might say, um, <clears throat> take those shoes and put them outside <laughs> or at least put them in the garage because they reek. We're not having that stink up the whole house, right? right feet are, are kind of gross feet are, are rather smelly but imagine being back in that day when you had no socks and when the only thing that would pass for a shoe was at best this this flimsy piece of animal leather that they called a the sandal that we would probably say that's a stretch by today's standards but by and large even then the most most people the common thing was to go barefoot wherever you went And as you're walking barefoot with the Middle Eastern sun beating down on you, your body starts to sweat and so do your feet. And that sweat starts to gather all the dust and the dirt and the grime from the streets and the road you're walking on. And do you know what else is walking on the streets that you're walking on? Animals. Like livestock, camels. Be And do you know what comes out of the south end of a northbound camel? <laughs> I, th- I think you do. And do you know, you can't exactly tell these animals where to go. They just go wherever and whenever they please. And if I'm honest, the jury is still out on what those uh, ancient sanitation practices were for the common people. So it's very likely that as you're walking, you're in likely some human business, all the while animals are doing their business, where you're trying to actually do your business. And it's pretty gross. This stuff would potentially just get smashed on the soles of your feet, smooshed between your toes, caked underneath your toenails, which is why when Jewish mamas would, would call their boys and their girls home for supper, they wouldn't just say, hey, wash your hands. They would say, wash those filthy, gross, nasty, stanky feet as well. It was a dirty job. So dirty, in fact, that if you were wealthy, you could pay someone to do this for you. You could hire a servant to take care of this. But in a house with many servants, this wasn't just any servant's job. This would be like the, uh, the low man on the totem pole. Like the servants would get around, okay, who's the new guy here? Okay, hey, you're the new guy? Awesome. You get the worst job and you get to wash everybody's feet. You get to fill a bowl with water. And as people come in, they sit down next to you and you get to scrub the dirt and the dust and the dung off of their toes. Not exactly a job anyone would volunteer for. And as the disciples are in that room with Jesus that night, there is no servant to wash their feet and every single one of them knows what needs to be done but not a single one of them is about to stoop to that low position to do it, to serve one another, Except Jesus. Jesus, the the cleanest, the holiest, the greatest of them all, stoops down to the lowest position, the dirtiest job, and gets his hands dirty and washes their feet. But I want you to take a, a step deeper and understand just what kind of feet those were. They weren't just any feet. They were the feet of of sinners. They were the feet of most of those people who would hours later run the other direction and abandon Jesus when he needed them most. Uh, Some of those feet, in a few hours, would, would shuffle around nervously in a fire in a courtyard and later deny knowing the very one who washed his feet hours before. And two of those feet, very soon after this, was going to march into the chief priests and sell Jesus out for a bag of money. And Jesus, knowing all of that, washed maybe the filthiest feet of the filthiest of sinners. And all the while he's doing this, the the disciples, they… They try to resist. Peter, especially, they, they, he resists, but Jesus insists. And after he's done, look at what Jesus says. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And there's his mandate. There, there's his command that he wants his church, his people, his followers to be known for. Love. Not necessarily washing feet, but maybe. But love. To love one another. And I love the fact that he decided to wash feet because I believe that is maybe the perfect metaphor to show us what real genuine selfless and sincere true love is it's getting messy it's it's getting down and dirty getting involved scrubbing getting yourself dirty to help someone else get clean it's it's sacrificing it's putting someone else's needs ahead of your own it's humbling and maybe that's the reason why none of those 12 men that night were about to lift a finger to do that for anyone else there because it's so hard. And maybe when we, when we see how messy, how, how selfless, and, and just how much it's, it's going to cost us, maybe we start to see this is not just what gets in the disciples' way, this is what gets in our way as well. Maybe this is what holds us back. Because what we like to do is we like to stay clean. Don't we? You know, we we like to think that we've got a, a pretty clean and tidy life, and we like to stay in our neat, clean, tidy little bubbles. And with opportunities all around us to love someone else, the hard part is we know, we know it's going to mean getting messy. Because let's just face it, people are messy. You know this. You have your own baggage, you have your own problems, so does everyone else. Everyone has problems. There's drama in everyone's life. There's issues. There's things that everyone is going through. And in order to help, in order to love someone selflessly, that means leaving your clean little bubble, going towards them and saying, I'm going to join in the mess with you. I'm going to scrub the mess with you, off of you. I'm going to help you. And it's almost like when those opportunities come, instead of diving right in, we we do this calculation and we say, well, well, how messy is too messy? How how involved? How dirty am I going to get before I do this? I mean, you think about it. Can I ask it? How messy is too messy for you? How involved is too involved for you? You know, maybe there's that person who, you just you can't stand them. <laughs> And it's not because they did anything against you, but it's because of their personality, their traits, their preferences, their opinions. They're just so far apart from you. But you know they need help. But man, getting involved in a person's like that, like no, no, I, I don't like them. Or maybe it's actually a little bit deeper than that. that. That when you look at something like alcohol or drug problems, do you say, I'm not touching that with a 20-foot pole? someone who's got a pornography addiction is your first thought oh you no that's gross i'm i'm going to i'm going to stay away from that someone who's in deep financially in distress underwater sinking and you got the opportunity to help in one way or another but but is the thought well hold on a second you know, they made some really poor financial decisions and choices here. They got themselves into this. I, what, do you think they're going to learn a lesson if someone just throws money at them and helps them out? No, no, they got themselves into it. You know what, they can get themselves out of this mess too. A homeless person panhandling for, for money, asking you for something. Is your first thought, you know they're just going to use it on booze? Just walk away. Not just you know what? Just just ignore it. Don't don't talk to him. Just you know what? Get a job. Easier said than done. You start to realize that when true love is is selfless, when it means getting down and dirty and getting messy, and you start to evaluate the opportunities in your life, the actions that you and I have done with with what's presented to us right here in these words, love one another, you start to see it's really easy to talk about love. It's a whole other thing to actually show it. It's really easy to say, I'm a Christian, I'm a person of love. It's a whole other thing to live it out. And maybe you start to realize, maybe the disciples' feet were not the filthiest things that night. So what do we do? Jesus gives us this mandate, love one another. How, how we're so messed up and we're so selfish, how do we get this selfless love? And maybe the best part is that Jesus, in the same verse that he gives us this mandate, in the same verse that we understand why this night is called Monday Thursday, he gives us the exact way that we can love like this. He says in verse 34, a new command I give you, Love one another. And then he says this, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And there it is. There's the power. As I have loved you. As Jesus has loved us, that's exactly how you and I can love one another. Because it's love that looks so unattractive at first because it's going to mean getting messy and dirty, when we realize, when we see Jesus' love for us, that's how we're able to love. Because what Jesus did that night, washing his disciples' feet, it wasn't just loving them, but it was a preview showing exactly another kind of washing that he was going to do just hours later. A washing of your soul. See, Jesus knew how his disciples were going to fail him. He knew where their feet were going to take them, but he also knew at that moment how you and I were going to fail him and where your feet would take you or wouldn't take you. And you know what he did? He loved. And he knew it meant getting messy. A whole lot messier than than getting your hands dirty with, with someone else's dirt and grime. It meant getting messy to the point of being a a pulpy, bloody mass nailed to a cross, suffocating and worse than that, being rejected, forsaken by your own Father in heaven, suffering death and hell. It was a mess beyond what we could comprehend and he said, I love you. And I'm going to show you how I love you. And despite the The secret sins that maybe you know about, he knows it too. Despite the shameful and embarrassing things that he does know as well, he said, I love you. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to go to that cross and I am going to pour out my holy blood to scrub and wash your sins away forever. And I think you'd agree that when you and I see that kind of love, does that not give you the power? Does that not allow you then to love someone else and get messy too? And you know what Jesus says will happen if we do that? He says in the last verse we get to look at tonight, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another everyone will know he says can you imagine what's going to happen to to your reput to the church's reput, to Jesus reputation in the community in your neighborhoods among your your friends and your co-workers if you did this can, can you imagine what would happen if you if you went all the way if you got as messy as possible if you shared this love and in case you, you can't quite imagine it Let history show you what happens when we love like this. This is a picture of a guy named Julian, known as Julian the Apostate. He was an emperor in the late 4th century AD of Rome. Went to power about 50 years after Christianity had finally been legalized in the nation of Rome. But by the time he got to power, there were problems in Rome. Rome was starting to deteriorate and collapse and cave in. There were all sorts of issues going on. And Emperor Julian was convinced that it was because Rome had lost their identity because they had taken on this new religion. They have allowed this new religion, Christianity, to come in. And so he's known throughout history as Julian the Apostate because of what he did to Christianity. Legalized as though it was, what he did was started to pass laws and rules and mandates to try to make it as difficult for Christians to carry out their religion as possible. But you would expect Christianity to just, you know, kind of hang on and and push through. But instead, what you saw was that Christianity didn't just survive, it thrived through through this time throughout Julian the Apostate's rule. And do you know why it thrived? Well, it wasn't because the Christians got together and massed their votes and said, you know what, we're going to get the right people in the right places of office so that we can lead a nation around our more, no. And and it wasn't because the Christians got together and they all just vented in public about how, you know what, this is oppression. This is injustice and our rights are getting taken away and we have rights. This is persecution of our, no, (laughs) no. Actually, Julian himself tells us how Christianity thrived in one of the letters he wrote to a friend that we still have hundreds of years later. And here's what he wrote. He said in a snippet, These impious Christians not only feed their own people, but ours also. Welcoming them with their agape, a word that actually means love, welcoming them with their love, they attract them as children are attracted to cakes. If you've had a birthday party, you know when the cake comes out, it's like all of a sudden all these kids, here they come, flocking in. Yeah, they want to just dive in, you know, take it with their hands if you, if you let them, right? And that kind of attraction is what Julian saw happening. He saw people from other religions, other places, other non-religions, everyone flocking towards Christianity. And do you know why? Because of the way they loved. Not just their people but all people they didn't just feed their poor they fed everyone's poor they didn't just just look after their hungry they looked after everyone's hungry people they didn't just genuinely love their own people they genuinely loved all people and can you imagine what would happen especially in a time like this in a worldwide pandemic in a shutdown when people are looking for hope, can you imagine what would happen if we had the same spirit? Can you imagine what might happen with the elderly couple who lives just down the road and they've got to be freaked out about going out, getting groceries, doing the, the things that they need at a time like this? What, what might happen? What might love them look like at a time like this? What about the widow who's all alone? How is she dealing with her loneliness at a very lonely time like this? And the single mom who feels forced to drag her kids wherever she has to go, maybe potentially putting them at risk, but what choice does she have? She's still got to provide for them. How do you think she feels about this? And to maybe your friends or your coworkers who've unfortunately lost their job and Maybe they're going to struggle with finding a way to pay for tuition, school, high school, college. Or maybe more than that, just just struggle getting by. What about the people in the hospitals who are limited to the visitors? Or maybe even the nursing homes where they're not allowing any visitors. What might loving them look like? I mean, we could go on and on and on with all these opportunities to, to show love to people. But the big question is, how do we do it? What's it going to look like? And maybe, maybe it means getting messy, getting dirty, getting involved. Maybe it means giving up part of that stimulus check that we're going to get. And maybe it, it's something that you look at and it potentially causes you to hesitate and say, hold on, I, that's a lot. But remember, who loved us first. And when that moment happens, pause and reflect on Jesus' love, how he loved us, and that's how we can love one another. He first loved us. And because he loved us, we must love one another. And when you and I get to do that, the world will see Jesus through us and the world will know that we are his disciples as we emulate his love and as we love one another. Amen.